si escuchan hay gente... Welcome everyone, you're listening to Daniel here on The Deer Report. Today we'll get an opportunity to share a conversation with historian Elliot Kim. We'll express our thoughts regarding labor, society, and the future of society through the respective fields of history and anthropology. But before we begin, Elliot, tell us a little bit about yourself, please. Yeah, hey, what's up, Dees? Uh, you know, thanks for having me. Um, uh, uh, born and raised in the IE. Um, I, you know, my first job out of college um, uh, was as a as a buck labor organizer, external labor organizer for SEIU, Service Employees International Union, which is one of the biggest unions in in the world. And um, and yeah, I was working for one of the bigger locals out in LA. Um, and yeah, I've done uh, I've done a uh, variety of um student labor and community activism and organizing in the um in the years since you know from uh you know from being you know rank and file you know canvasser and labor organizer to you know being on the executive board for uaw 2865 which represents uh, um over thirteen thousand academic student employees in the uc system um and i grew up in the quote-unquote like you know, the movement, as it were, like my dad um, spoke at like anti-war protests and stuff when I was growing up and um, was always very aware of sort of, um, you know, just social justice issues, was made aware of, you know, just exposed to rather than, you know, indoctrinated growing up. Um, so it's always been an interest to me. Um, and uh, yeah, and now I, I teach U.S. history at, uh, at uh, San Bernardino Valley College and, um, and uh, yeah, colonial and modern. So we talk a lot about... Um, uh, a lot of the things that people are talking about <laughs> these days on a regular basis. So, uh, so yeah, happy to be here and happy to share any minimal insights I might have. Well, Elliot, I want to thank you definitely for taking the time to share your, your perspective on things. In fact, that's one of the reasons I was kind of looking forward to talking to you about because you, you have both the academic context of a historian, but when you share your background, You've been engaged in the conversation about labor right with labor rights. I guess it wouldn't be an exaggeration, pretty much the bulk of your life. And I'm curious how those two perspectives, you know, the academic preparation, the educator preparation, you know, your teaching history kind of intersects, gets supplemented, complemented by your perspective as a someone that has manifested the participation of labor rights and more than anything, how that works with what is happening now so that I keep tabs of news articles and video reports that will kind of reference unemployment rates. Um, they'll reference shifts in the work pattern. Myself as an educator, uh, has had to adjust to how I teach my classes. I'm in, I'm, I'm teaching from uh, a remote format, so my classroom becomes my desk at home. The equipment that I use 
you know, it's all brand new in the sense that I'm trying to make sense of like, can I have a webcam to kind of teach? And then I'm keeping reference to people that are, are around me and they're doing the same thing and they're not educators per se. They're, some of them are, are working in marketing. Others are, are support staff and other institutions, but they're referencing something similar, which is like their work week, their work pattern is changing. And as a historian, are you catching any patterns in terms of labor? There's, a, there's like a, there's a really rich history there, you know, and just in terms of my own experience, you know, the, like, you know, like the, the theory and the praxis, as it were, you know, my lived experience absolutely informs like, you know, my perspective, you know, in the academic realm, as it were. Um, and for me in a very healthy way, right. And Cause like, you know, when we talk about things like, uh, unemployment rates and uh, a minimum wage versus a living wage, you know, I can speak as, you know, with my, you know, historical background, I can speak to how long these struggles have been going on. I mean, literally millennia, like, no, but it's no exaggeration to say that. Um, then I also understand in a very real and visceral and personal way what it's like to be paid, you know, seven, eight, nine bucks an hour to do a job that is you know, kind of grungy and that nobody else really wants to do, you know? Um, and so I, I think it's helpful for, for folks, for all of us, you know, and we all have, we, uh, many of us, you know, um, in our own ways, I think, you know, have, have that, that sort of, you know, that combined, um, experience and perspective as it were, but, it, but again, not everybody has the opportunity to talk about these things and to learn about these things in the context of, you know, um, higher education and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm very grateful to have been able to spend, to have spent time in, in both realms, right? Like in the academic, within the ivory tower and, uh, and very much outside of it in a lot of ways. And just to the current, uh, situation, um, yeah, no, there's, I mean, you know, we're seeing, we're seeing a lot of things kind of, uh, the culmination of a lot of, um, um, long-standing, you know, struggles for um, greater equity, right? Um, more fair, more just compensation for people's labor. Um, you know, there's been this ongoing conversation. You know, there was, um, you know, a lot of these things. You know, people people get the sense that these conversations may be new or newish, but pretty much all of them have been ongoing, right? But um, people have been talking about uh, uh, universal basic income more recently, which ties into a conversation about, you know, the 40 hour work week, which we, we must remember used to be a 60, 70, 80 hour work week, right? With no OSHA, no overtime, no workers comp, no, no unemployment, nothing. So all things that have come since um, the new deal and, you know, come from the new deal and since, right? Um, and so we're seeing, ongoing conversations and issues being exacerbated and highlighted by the current crisis in a number of ways. And it's interesting. I think one thing that's important to highlight is, you know, with so many things for those who are fortunate to have like, like us to have, you know, work that can be and has been moved online. Um, there's a huge, there's a huge techno uh, technology gap, right? Um, you know, the digital divide, I think, as it's called, um, like a lot of students and a lot of instructors as well, just in, just in the realm of education, don't necessarily have the access to, you know, have access to the necessary equipment to make this kind of, you know, pretty sudden and drastic um, shift to being completely online. And, you know, I'm concerned about folks who are being left behind or struggling with that transition. And um, it's, it's a lot. I think, um, I think it really comes down to, you know, 
in the industrial age, you know, the United States compared to other, you know, industrial, wealthy, industrialized, you know, former uh, colonial or current colonial um, nations, you know, relatively speaking, labor law in the United States is is notoriously weak, and um, you know, you know, issues with um, the you know the rideshare drivers and, and all that fun stuff, which you know impacts me indirectly as well, um, less directly than a lot of others though, who where that's their primary income. We're seeing a lot of things come come to a head. I feel like you know, I mean, um, you know, crises, moments of crisis always uh, are moments of opportunity for. For change that can be both good and bad, you know, um, and it's usually a mixed bag. And so I'm, I'm really curious to see what comes out of the crisis in terms of sort of the 20 hour versus the 40 hour work week. You know, do we need to be sitting in cubicles 40 hours a week to really be productive? You know, all the studies show that, you know, that's not the case. And, um, and this, you know, this current crisis is, I think, um, just, um, um, accelerating a lot of those conversations in ways that might have might have taken um, a bit more time otherwise. I'm motivated by something you brought forward that in this moment of crisis, there are conversations that are getting highlighted. But from your perspective, you are able to catch that these conversations for some may be new, but as to use kind of your uh, wording, these are long-standing conversations. Some of the things that you referenced are issues of living wage, working conditions, support, uh, security. And these conversations feel very new for a lot of us. And I was a little bit shocked at first, but then I became motivated or at least appreciative of the fact that I was hearing more and more people speak in a way that I hadn't heard before. So one of the first things that I remember hearing were the people that we had previously assumed should not get paid more. There was more support. Maybe give them two extra bucks. If you're in, if you're a cashier at a supermarket, there was a lot of support. In fact, some of the major chains did go ahead and put a $2 bump on their wage. Um, if you're working at a warehouse... A temporary bump. <laughs> correct. The thing that I want to reference is that there is a conversation about how those moments where, where there was a wider support for these talks were just catching up on the actual talks because the talks were decades in, 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 in operation. The movement to get a higher living wage, a more responsive um, salary... Uh, was already there. It was not new. But I feel that there was a shift when we started calling people essential workers um, where, the, where the public felt that the previous narrative of disrespect could no longer be used. Because there was a line that I grew up with that we called certain people unskilled workers. And those unskilled workers that were, you know, a year ago being disrespected are now being called essential workers. And that shift gave people enough consideration to say, hey, uh, maybe they should get paid for, uh, paid a little bit more. Um, some people are using hazard pay as a phrase, like, hey, give them hazards, hazard pay. And maybe those are the talks that are incomplete into what the movement of support 
want. Because for me, I, I, I can live with hazard pay if you're going to give me compensation and I feel disrespected. But I want to also think about like, it doesn't have to be hazard pay. It could just be equitable pay. Like equally, like in the yeah. terminology. <laughs> um, uh, a living wage, you know, a wage that it could be, it could be pay that, you know, that you can actually pay your bills and support a family and have enough left over to live comfortably. You know, we're not talking about living the lifestyle of a billionaire. That's the opposite of what we're talking about. But yeah, no, absolutely. And that's where we are now in, in this question that um, yeah. you pose, like what, what comes next? And there's a couple of things that have changed. Um, a lot of us learned that certain formats that were previously being told to us that were impossible or not very productive um, were possible and were productive. And what I mean by that is that they told us, for example, some of us were asking, can I work from home? Do I have to go into the office five times a week? And they would say, no, I need to see you in the office. As soon as this happened, within a week, we all were working from home. So we found out that wasn't accurate, that wasn't true, that you know we couldn't perform our job remotely. But there's also this other question, and, and I hope I'm not kind of confusing the conversation here, by saying not all of us were able to work from home. Some of us yeah. were able to adjust. I teach, and I was able to teach online. Not the same. In fact, I want to be very clear that like I'm struggling with this whole teaching remotely. Um, I find that um, it's very different. It's not the same. You know, the, the being in the classroom is a, a whole different thing. And, yeah, no, and I want to no. be supportive of the fact that like we're doing our best and I think we can get uh, to a good place of education. Um, our classrooms are, are, are being met by amazing educators trying their best. But a lot of us, when you ask us, we want to go back. <laughs> we want to we want to be in the classroom because that format was very different. Yeah. But then the question still is, is is being posed here. The one that I posed says, "What about all of those other jobs that couldn't be done remotely? What do we? Where where are they placed in the conversation?" Yeah, that's that's a good question. And for me, that's like, you know, it, that's sort of it's a little bit separate because there are jobs that just can't or shouldn't be done. Um, I mean, they're related, but it's a little bit, it's like a side, a little bit of a, right? It's like, like you said, it's like sort of two questions, right? Because it's like, what about the jobs that couldn't be moved online? And it's, um, it's like, well, there are jobs, obviously, that couldn't or shouldn't be done right now, right? You know, like people shouldn't be going out to restaurants. People shouldn't be, you know, uh, you know, at a water park, for example, stuff like that. And so the question from that, though, is so what about the, what about those jobs? What about the people who do that work? What about their livelihood? How are they going to survive? And that raises that larger question that you, you mentioned already, you know, what how what is the state of the social safety net in this country? And it is abhorrent by any measure, you know, I mean, relatively speaking, you know, we have anyways, you know, the wealth, the wealth gap, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, so there's that. And then there's, um, and then there's the other, you know, the, the, the bigger picture, the bigger context in a nutshell, in my mind, I feel like we're, we're working to update an antiquated system. Right. Like the labor model that we have right now, you know, this 40 hour a week, stuff like that. That used to be 60, 70 hours a week without any of the minimal protections that we have now. Right. Um, that model is 200 ish, 250 ish years old, you know, late, late 1700s, you know, up to the present day, you know, the first and second industrial revolutions. And, and the model that we're dealing with is about was based on 
It was created by the so-called captains of industry and, you know, and their cohorts and their, their peers, and they're often one of the same in, in, in you know, high-ranking legislative bodies across the country and the state and national level. Um, it was created to literally, you know, and you can go back to the 1840s, 50s, and 60s, you know, especially the 1860s of camp. I'm blanking on the guy's name, but, you know, one of the primary architects of the public education system, primary and secondary public education system in the United States, which really didn't become a nationwide thing until after the Civil War. I, if I recall correctly, I mean, he said it was it was very explicitly, we're doing this because we want to make sure that, you know, communism, you know, socialism, you know, don't take a foothold here. And it was about, you know, creating, you know, like you said before we started the conversation, it's about training people to do jobs in the industrial society, and the jobs were modeled on maximum labor extraction. That's why a standard work week used to be 60, 70 hours a week. You worked Monday through Saturday, and we had Sunday off because it was, quote-unquote, a Christian God-fearing nation. I mean, like, you know, don't take my word for any of this stuff, right? It was all, you know, historical record. And the country, from the beginning, from, the, from that first Industrial Revolution, late 1700s, early 1800s, the country and the world has been rocked by major, and in many cases, bloody, violent labor disputes and conflicts. So all with, uh, with industrialization and mechanization, and all this wealth that is being you know, extracted and produced, and, you know, products and resources and stuff, all this wealth that's being produced, industrial workers across the world were you know, basically, hey, like, you know, our share too. Um, and so strikes and these disputes and wage wage disputes and hour disputes and, you know, whether or not women can work, you know, or vote, you know, is slavery. Like, you know, the, the conversation around slavery and abolition of this country is centered in a big way around labor because workers, not all abolitionists were, you know, anti-racist egalitarians. A lot of them were folks who couldn't have cared less. They just didn't want to have to compete with slave wages, which are, you know, pretty, you know, next, nothing, right? Or, you know. Next to nothing, um, and so this is it's is there's so much there's so much there, and um, you know the United States, you know industrial workers in Western Europe, you know popular comparison because there's a similar colonial history there, but you know the United States and Western Europe, industrial workers in Western Europe got the right to organize unions without being thrown in jail um, in the mid to late 1900s or mid to late 1800s, 19th century. Workers in the United States didn't get that until the, the the Wagner Act in the 1930s, and so it's like an 80-year gap there, basically. Um, and unions are the vehicle by which we got things like reduced working hours to to a 40-hour work week. You know, eight hours for rest, eight hours for play, eight hours for play, eight hours for sleep. That was one of the slogans back in like the 1880s and stuff, right? Um, advocating for an eight-hour workday. Um, and so this is like, you know, unions were the vehicle for that, one of the main vehicles for that, you know, because th those contracts are where that stuff is negotiated and where that is arbitrated and where that is written down, where it's codified and put into contract law. This is the contract that that is, you know, bargained by the union, representatives of the union and representatives of the employer, and it defines the conditions of labor, including wages, working conditions, et cetera, benefits, if any, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, people, the reason I mention that is because you know, for example, most industrialized nations in Western Europe have long had things like universal education up through, you know, um, college, and the university, um, as well as universal healthcare. They've had those things pretty much across the board, and many pla other places do around the world as well. They're not the only ones, but they've had those things for a while now compared to the United States, whereas we're still working towards, you know, a living wage and universal healthcare and universal education that includes a college uh, education, right? Um, and so I feel like the United States is really catching, playing catch up. 
And that's like, and again, all the, like I said, all those things are kind of being exacerbated um, by, by the current crisis. And it's, and, and, and it's, and there's some interesting nuance going on there with, um, you know, the conversation about like how productive is a 40 hour work week, you know, in different countries, even before the crisis, even before um, the pandemic, we're testing, you know, things like a 20 hour work week and finding that it was as productive, if not more so as a standard 40 hour work week, right? Because we have these conversations in class, you know, and, and, and I ask them, I'm, I ask them like, who here has ever had like a nine to five, you know, nine to five office job, you know, never, you know, not a lot, but you know, some, you know, some, some folks, you know, uh, raising hands, whatever. I'm like, how much time did you actually, do you feel like you actually spent working? You know, they generally, they generally the response is like <laughs> a chuckle, like, you know, uh, you know, and I'm like, exactly. Like when you're mandated to be there these hours, you just, you, you find ways to just kind of fritter away the, fritter away the time and do as little as possible necessary to get by because they've taken your time. This is what you have to do to get by just to pay, just to eat and put a roof over your head. If you're not born independently wealthy, it's what we all have to do. As, as I also say in class. In, in life, you know, if, if you're not born rich, you're born working, you know, and so all this stuff is, you know, there's a, there's a lot going on. There's a big zeitgeist there. And as you were, you know, pointing out earlier with that other question, what about the folks who are, you know, who, you know, um, service workers, a lot of service workers, you know, folks who are out of work right now. And again, you know, can't go to work because of the pandemic. What about the folks, you know, how do we take care of the people who, have lost um, all of their livelihood, and you know, I mean, you know, unemployment applications are you know all time high, you know, historic highs. Um, you know, the you know the quarterly GDP, gross domestic product, or whatever for you know, the United States, that economic, that very general um, economic measuring stick is like you know took the biggest dip in recorded U.S. history the last quarter. You know, I mean, this is. Um, you know, we've dealt with pandemics, we've dealt with um, depressions and recessions constantly and, and labor strikes and disputes and, and this debate and this conversation, you know, for, for literally, I mean, since like the Hammurabi Code, you know, um, and probably before. Um, but this, but with, you know, globalization and increased um, connectivity and inter interconnectivity with, you know, um, the digital age and everything, it's, um, we're seeing new things come to light. So I don't, it, there's a, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot there. Um, and but just, you know, the two things I wanted to mention that, that this conversation reminded me of is, you know, in the, in the labor movement, you know, amongst labor organizers, there's two very common sayings that kind of sum everything up. It's, you know, um, just one, the first is, you know, there's dignity in all labor. Doesn't matter what you do, you know. I started out, and then one of the reasons these issues are so visceral for me personally is because my first job was as you know, a fourteen-year-old part-time janitor after school because I went to a private school. They were able to employ me at the age of fourteen with a with a work permit, and because I was being employed with a work permit, I made eighty-five percent of minimum wage. Minimum wage at that point in time, this nineteen ninety-six, was something along the lines of four dollars and twenty-five cents. And so I was being paid as a 14-year-old janitor $3.85 to go around and do what they would have had to pay an adult and give them benefits and a salary to do, you know, just for a few hours at a time. So it was okay. And that really taught me a lot, you know. And my mom taught at that school, did not make a lot of money. We did not have a lot of money growing up, you know. And I'm watching, you know, kids who, you know, no nothing, you know, it's not their fault, nothing against them, but kids who 
very opulent lifestyles are my classmates, you know, and my mom's students. And I'm just like, and they're paying a lot of money to go to that school. And, you know, and I'm just all like, well, where, like it, it just didn't add up to me from a very early age, you know? Um, and so, you know, just the idea that there's dignity in all labor and then, you know, there's, there's no silver bullet as the saying goes, right? Like in, in labor organizing, you hear that a lot. Like there's no, in, in community activism organizing in general, you hear that a lot. I feel like, right? Like just like, there's no silver bullet. There's no, one single thing or issue or policy or approach that's going to solve all the problems that we have, you know, regarding labor and just all the injustices in the world. Um, but the the only way, the only, but the, the flip of that is the only silver bullet is to do something about it. Because by not doing anything about it, it it's not going to solve itself, you know. So, it's, you know, there's dignity in all labor and there's no silver bullet aside from just, you know, taking action and getting organized. But, um, yeah, there's a lot there, man. I don't know. I'm curious to hear. Yeah, what, what what you think about you know what the future might look like coming out of all this. I like the question you pose. You know that this moment in time really is, you know, bringing forward this question of reflecting upon a larger assessment of our society, so that we understand ourselves much more visceral or much more tangibly now than before the COVID-19 shutdown. And I, I want to be clear, clear that when I say we, I'm trying to pretend that there is this like majority default populace. Because when, you, when I talk with my friends who were engaged in the labor rights movement, this is not new. This is, they have even a deeper understanding of what's going on. But what I'm referencing is, is talks that I've had with people that a year ago were saying, if you work at the supermarket, you shouldn't be getting more than $10 an hour, $9 an hour. And then I would ask them why. And they were like, because that job is designed to be an after-school job. If you work at the fast food restaurant, you shouldn't have benefits. And I would get asked why. It's like, because that's just a training job. It's designed for high school kids. And then I would say, but if you look, it has adults that have families. And then they would answer me with, that's their fault. You, you know, they made the mistake of finding themselves trapped in this job. Now, a year later, that same person tells me, you know what? Those people should be getting an extra $2 an hour. And I go, why? Well, because they're putting themselves out there. Right now, there's a pandemic and they're essential workers. And I'm just telling myself, wow, so you couldn't see this a year ago because it's the same people doing the same job. But now that you see the immediacy of their value, which was there the whole time, by the way, to, to paraphrase what you said, right. there is dignity in all labor. So I'm only referencing this idea or I'm referencing a, a, a conversation that I'm giving credit as like new when I know it's not new. And, and the things that are coming out of those conversations are, are really beautiful questions. A, a question of reflection that says, is this how it's supposed to be forever? Can we modify it? And the answer last year was no, and this year it's yes. <laughs> but I also want, I also want to uh, kind of I, go on something like that it. you mentioned because it, it's sparking this conversation for me, which is the idea of imagination and creativity 
connected to power and agency because the the models we had before of these horrible moments that we can recall about child labor uh, high exploitation workforces mm-hmm. we can still say there is child labor today and there's high exploitation of the workforce today but there's been a couple things mm-hmm. that I'm glad we have so I'm glad that we have as a default a belief system that an eight hour day is the default and not a 16 hour day many of us are working 16 hours I want to be clear with that but I want to say the default position was eight hours and that came about by the things you referenced yeah. a, a huge movement of labor activists that said hey we can, we need time for ourselves we need to carry this 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 labor and rest and also hopefully create opportunities of advancement and new directions so i'm just thinking about this idea that you pose yeah. what will it look like and i think the future is being transformed but it's also being co-opted by the same people that never wanted labor rights never wanted labor reform and never wanted labor equity because the the default i'm thinking about something i'm going to take this way back to like adam smith and for those people that like are into old school social theory and capitalist which, I mean, theory he, right he, which is, you know, that's the dawn of the industrial age. In, in in the larger context, really not even that far back. But yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's a no, while. It's, it's funny while. how you say it. Uh, as an anthropologist, you know, it's nothing. Yeah, right? A couple hundred years is nothing. Yeah. But but also as, <laughs> exactly. a, as this, like, person that's been around this planet for over 40 years, it when I think past 40 years, I'm like, wow, that's a long time ago. <laughs> but But to the point... Yeah, yeah, it was a while, but you know, it's 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 only like you know a few grandparents, right? It's only a few grandparents. Right. But the line here goes like this: the the labor force that we think of as transformative and equitable in comparison to slave labor, right? It's a mm-hmm. it's an awful position to compare ourselves, but it's the one that we have owned because even think about Adam Smith when he looks at the idea of like. How can you extract more labor from this human being? His assessment is turn him into a worker. Don't keep him as a slave. And that to me is disruptive. It's heartbreaking to say that because it sounds disgusting that I'm like, are you telling me that those are the two options? Yes, when, when, it's, when you're asking the community that is trying to extract resources from you. You know, that's how they see us. They just see us as like, how much, how much capital can I manufacture from your body's labor? And it doesn't ask yeah. the question that I want. I, I would love a question that says, hey, as a human being, how do you want to participate on this planet? And a lot of us want to participate. Yeah, we want to contribute with our labor, if you want to call it that. We want to contribute by doing something, but we also want to feel healthy. Creative. And that's where I kind of think about this idea of like the conversation for me is like a healthy imagination, a healthy world building, a creative one that says we have started taking steps in that direction. So let's give ourselves credit that we are already there. We have already modified the work week. Uh, It's been done by the generations before us. 
And we have also modified the way we even think about our work today. If you're working at home, if you've shifted the, the way that you think of yourself and participating with your company, I think we're there already. So we just have to push a little bit more forward. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, the, the organizer and historian in me is, you know, is just going to, you know, Grace Lee Boggs and, and you know, um, CLR James and everybody else is going to tell you, you know, Howard Zinn, Noam Chomsky, Angela Davis, they're all going to say, how do you, how do you, how do you create change? Um, you know, lasting change, effective change, all the studies support this is by being organized, you know, it's people power. That's the only thing. So if we want to push, if we want to see those more health, those healthier, more positive horizons, you know, I encourage folks to, as always, you know, get informed, think critically and get engaged, get involved, be like, do something because it's not enough for us to just think about it or talk about it. You know, conversations are fun and are nice and everything. But, um, as the saying goes, actions speak uh, louder than words. And, and, and that's it. Like if we want to see those in, 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 if we want to see positive change, we have to, we have to make it, you know, like as, as I like to say, the only, the only justice that exists in this world is that which we create, you know, like the, 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 you know, some abstract law is not going to do it, you know, as James Madison, one of the, one of the primary authors of the, of the, this country's contract between the government and the governed, the constitution all those years ago. And it was designed to maintain a very specific status quo, right? And people have been put, trying to get that wiggle room and push that door open and get a seat at that table ever since, right? James Madison, he said, yeah, sure, you can have those bill of, the, the Bill of Rights. You can have those concessions or whatever, those guarantees. But those, because they were concessions for the Federalists, they didn't want to give people those guaranteed rights. He said, fine, have them. But those are words on paper. I believe he called them parchment protections, right? And, you know, it's hardly his original idea. He was he was he was right in recognizing it's just obvious. He's like those are words on paper. If you don't have a way to enforce them and back them up, what do they mean? They mean nothing. They, it's ink on paper. That's it. You know. And so and it's important. It's really important ink on paper, right? But unless there's a way to enforce it, and I heard an interview on some I think on Counterspin or something a little while ago with some guy who was you know who'd done the studies, done you know done the research and done a study showing how like long lasting positive social change, you know, meaning like you know in, in creating increasing the standard of, of living and general health and well-being for the majority of the population, right, for an extended period of time, the longest lasting change of that kind came through nonviolent social, cultural, and political movements and revolutions, you know, and that's, that's where it comes from. And that ties back to, like, how did we get rid of child labor? How did women get the right to work and vote in this country? How did we abolish slavery in this country and around the world? is through literal armed struggle, you know, I mean, like, like the Ludlow massacre up until the 1930s when industrial workers in the, in the United States were given the right to organize a union if they so choose. Up until then, you could be arrested and thrown in jail for conspiracy, for getting together to talk about how to organize and, 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 and lobby and advocate and act for higher wages and safer working conditions. Up until the 1930s, it's barely, not even 100 years ago, you know. So we want to recognize, you know, the, like the little, the people who literally sacrificed their lives just to get us to, you know, where, where we're at today. You know, as you were saying, recognizing how much further we still have to go. Overtime protections for, you know, have the standard work week, right, in the United States. Overtime is after 40 hours, right, in most cases. If you, like, you know, that's, that's, that's not just a union contract. That's just law. That's state and national law now, thanks to union contracts. Um, if, I re if, if I recall correctly, in the agricultural sector, that standard is, is still at 60 hours. 
So in the agricultural sector, you still have to work, you have to work 60 hours before you get your eligible for overtime. That's if you're going to get it anyway, right? Because a lot of these folks, a lot of folks in the agricultural sector are undocumented, right? Do not necessarily have, you know, union contracts, strong representation, or the strong desire to speak up and make a target of themselves, right? To advocate for their rights when they're being violated. Um, so, you know, like, yeah, it's, it's so much sacrifice has brought us to where we are today. And it's going to take hopefully not that kind of struggle, you know, it's much more, you know, in the digital age, a lot of this stuff is happening online, all these campaigns with different social media and stuff like that. Like the, the like the landscape has definitely changed, but it's still going to take, still going to take work to get there. Like you're saying, and I think it's interesting, like you're saying that, like, you know, the people whose perspectives have, have shifted so much just, you know, from a year ago, like, well, that's their fault. They didn't go to school and get a better job to like, oh, that's an essential worker. Yeah. They deserve more, like better pay. <laughs> like it's, I feel like that, that bootstrap, that bootstrap myth is being busted in real time again, you know, and it's like a uh, history is cyclical, right? Like life is cyclical. Like, you know, like we've had these conversations, like, you know, the United States was on the verge of like, you know, like not, maybe not quite, but it was, you know, the United States was leaning pretty heavily socialist, much more like, you know, the rest of proverbial Western Europe back in the thirties and forties and the fifties broke that right. And the fifties and sixties and seventies were pushed back and then the eighties and nineties and it were pushed back against the sixties and seventies. And then the aughts and to now we're seeing a real big push back against, you know, the neoliberalism and all that imperialism that resurged in the eighties and nineties, you know, and stuff. So it's, and the wars in Iraq and the invasions and occupations of Iraq and Afghanistan and everything there. I like what you were saying about dreaming big, you know, and really trying to um, expand our imaginations, you know, not be limited by, you know, the, like by by what's been what we've been taught is appropriate or reasonable or, or you know, like what you, you got to lower, lower your expectations. It's like makes me think of the Nina Simone song, Go Slow. She's talking about all these well-meaning liberals in the 50s and 60s who were saying, like, go slow, go slow. The country's not ready for desegregation. It's not ready for that. You got to go slow. You got to you got to temper your expectations. And she and people have been screaming for a long time. Enough has been enough. <laughs> like enough with this go slow, you know, um, and it's it just, you know, I think it was, like, this all ties back to what you said about like power and agency. Right. And just like people power being like being like the root of the thing but the but what that what people power is opposed by is like you said that co-optation the potential for increased exploitation of labor the, the like labor rights can be taken away rights what rights of any kind can be taken away right and saying so, it's hard right to to organize and make change right so yeah it's like i don't know you just gotta you gotta be careful right um and, and try to direct things in a, in, towards a more positive outcome right like you know, recognizing how diverse like humanity is, but you know, it's like, it's like, like you were saying earlier, like it's like that collective imagination. It's a paradigm shift into collective consciousness for better or worse. Right. Cause we're all people, we're all on the same planet together as much as some folks don't want to admit it <laughs> or want to keep a, you know, they're a piece of the planet just for themselves or whatever, you know? Um, but all this actually just wrapping up makes me think of like, like new ideas and old ideas and just like the future and stuff and vision of the future makes me think of this, you know, example again, you know, it's in my basic, you know, the, the basic U.S. history survey courses, you know, uh, I think it was Edward Bellamy, I believe is the author, if I recall correctly, he, he I don't you remember, there's a, I think he wrote a book called Looking Back or Looking Backward, Backwards or something, and this was in like the, oh, early, early like early 1900s, either late, late 1800s or, or very early 1900s, I think, 
And he wrote a book basically about like a Rip Van Winkle kind of scenario where a guy falls asleep at, at that present time and wakes up a hundred years in the future. And it's like the year 2000 basically. And, and, and the book was a utopian vision of, of a society where labor was basically fully automated and all anybody had to worry about was like, you know, living a creative and healthy and, and, and satisfying and fulfilled life. You know, and basically the machines were doing all the, all the backbreaking and, and work, you know, that people, <laughs> that people had long been, been used to do, you know, and so it was a very, and so it's just interesting, right? And another, I think it's like 1912, this um, Catholic priest who was well known for advocating for, you know, um, liberation theology, right? Social justice through a Christian theological lens. Um, he wrote an essay or a letter or something or whatever. It was, you know, advocating for a living wage, not a minimum wage, a living wage, right? That was in 1912. And you go back to the early and mid 1800s and people were fighting for what they called a family wage, right? Because again, women typically not allowed to even work, you know, women, yes and no, right? But women often discouraged, actively discouraged from participating in the workplace. Um, and so, you know, predominantly male workforce were advocating for what they called a family wage, a wage that was enough to support a family on. You know, that's just, right? Like you're saying, that's just the past 200, 200 odd years, you know? Um, so there's, there's, I don't know, there's a lot there. And I'm excited to see, you know, I'm confident, you know, I mean, like different people have different ideas about this. I don't know, I'm curious about your thoughts on the arc of history, whether, whether it bends towards chaos or towards justice. Because, you know, Dr. King and others famously said, you know, the arc of history bends towards justice right um gandhi and others credited with saying you know all dictators fall you know every single one um but then like others like Tanahasi coates you know i saw him in an interview on a, a late night talk show i don't know if he still feels this way but he said you know he said i disagree he said that he believed the arc of history leans um bends towards chaos there's not a guarantee that it will always bend towards justice you know and i'm I feel like I straddle both camps a little bit personally, but um, but I'm curious to see where that arc of history leads coming out of this really transformative, you know, crisis moment with the pandemic and everything. All right. So I think about that a lot. I think about, you know, where we are in this moment in time and how it's playing out in a larger context of history. And when I think about history, I use the word, probably outside of the context of most historians because I think mm. of just the, the timeline of, of human beings and communities. Mm. And when I think about this moment in time, I feel very disassociated from it. I feel very much, yeah, I struggle with it personally. I feel like, like I'm visiting this awkward society that I, <laughs> I know I'm a part of. I've been here. 40 plus years, I can tell you, I recall almost every year of my life, but it does feel uncomfortable to know or to feel that, that some, some of us think this is it. Nothing's ever going to change. While I am surrounded mm -hmm. by beautiful people that are models, some older than I, some younger than myself, that are telling me this is all changing. Just, just watch tomorrow. <laughs> just watch what's going to happen next week. Uh, so so I'm, I'm committed to this perspective that, that change is 
constant. We are living expressions of change. You know, you and I are, are, yeah. are someone else's change, you know, so that I am motivated by that. And, and I am aware of, of sounding too romantic by that. So people are going like, man, this person is like whack. I can't subscribe <laughs> to that narrative because my yeah. existence is, is real. You know, I have to make ends meet. And I go, me too. Right. I have to do it too. But, and I do consent to doing things that are not romantic. Like I, I have had a collection of jobs. Some of them, I don't regret any single one of them. I remember being a, uh, a mm. custodian worker in college, cleaning the bathrooms. Um, and I never even hated that. I was a little bit embarrassed at the time, I remember, because I was young. Yeah. And I, I, w I would go to the rec center and, and I would see people working out. And I, I would get a little bit embarrassed, you know, when I had to clean up after them. But that was my own stigma right. because I didn't own what you said. There is dignity in all labor. You know, like I, I still felt well, like, well, why? Well, why do I have to do this? Why can't I work out? I could work out as soon as I finished cleaning uh, the spaces. But the point being that where I stand uh, now is that those expressions of vulnerability are real. I'm not taking away that from, every, from anyone because I've experienced that myself. But I also understand that we have expressions of power and and agencies as, as human beings so that I am motivated by that change. I see, I see a lot of things right now, you know, that are, are a little bit difficult to be encouraged by so that I see a lot of people hurting because we've lost our jobs or, or we're hurting because we didn't lose our job, but we lost our schedule so that like, um, instead of working from nine to five, I work from nine to like 11 at, at night. And then, and I can't figure out how to get a nine to five schedule so that I can kind of like relax at 6 p.m. And, and I see all those things and I realize, but there's also opportunities here. You mentioned something uh, in a previous conversation, which was this model of saying, you know, if we, if we collectively support one another, there's power in that. And I think one of the things that COVID-19 did it that it it severed our collective presence you know it um it severed this sense of feeling that we were able to talk about what we were sharing physically and by being placed in in our homes i don't know there was encouragement but also the, i think there's a question mark there about saying is there is there a loss of opportunity to collectively support one another I mean, it's major. It's majorly disruptive, right? And you know, change. You're sort of, I mean, like change is the only constant, right? Like you know that. In um, one of the first things to do in my history classes is you know put that on the board that that delta over t, right? That change over time. And I'll just put that on the board. I'll be like, anybody know what this is? You know, someone will be like, oh, is that like something to do with time. Or something. I'm like, yeah, change over time, right? Or someone will be like, yeah, it's change over time. I'm like, exactly. Um, but change is the only constant, right? Um, and it's uh, and it's often hard and it's often difficult and it's often painful. But for some, it, it can also it's also redeeming and, and liberating, right? And, and enlightening. Um, and it's uh, yeah, no, it's an interesting question. I mean, so like a lot has definitely been lost with the COVID and like the isolation, right? The isolation is real, 
is very real and very painful, um, you know, and just compounds uh, all the other, you know, pre-existing and existing conditions, right? When you can't interact on a normal level. And we've lost a lot, but we've also seen a lot, you know, even in the midst of that, we had, you know, with all its problems, I'm sure, um, you know, that mutual aid kind of, um, kind of like free space or whatever that was set up in Seattle for a few days or a week or two or whatever it was, you know, and again, you know, recognizing not to say that that was some idealistic utopia or anything without its flaws. I don't know. I wasn't there, you know, um, but I've heard some really, but, you know, I heard some really encouraging stories come out of that, you know, as well as, you know, some things like, you know, some, some concerning stories, um, but I, I feel like there's, with this opportunity, you know, there's, there's we've seen, we've seen people doing what people do, which is adapt, right? Which is change and, and adapt to the circumstances and situation and, um, and help each other out, help each other out in ways that, that, that are, um, that are not new, but maybe unprecedented in terms of like scale, scope and duration, you know, and it, when it's like, it harkens back to the 1920s and thirties, you know, we've got people lining up in their cars, you know, in order to maintain, maybe isolated, the people lining up for miles and miles in their cars at food banks, you know, and then I saw some news articles, some headline that was referencing, you know, the fact that for a lot of, a lot of people in, the, in this country, they're having to utilize the services of a place like a food bank or a shelter or something like that um, for the first time in their lives. And I mean, you know, the eviction crisis, the looming eviction crisis, I mean, you know, the, the you know, the, limited rent moratorium is going to, is, is about to expire. And we're seeing all this, you know, like the current secretary of the treasury is so, so, um, just detached and clueless as far as I'm concerned, you know, saying, well, we can't pay people to not work. Well, people can't work right now. Like what, what else are you going to do? You know, you're going to have a bunch of angry, hungry parents in the streets pretty quick. Then they'll figure it out. And so I'll, well, surprise, surprise. Oh, here's another stimulus check while we figure it out, you know. But I think what we're seeing highlights the fact that, you know, the people who run this country are essentially, you know, or currently, by and large, at the federal level at least, um, you know, hand in glove with, you know, the big international, you know, international, just big corporations, you know, big money essentially. I mean, like, and that's whose interests they serve. Like you were saying earlier, you know, extract labor and, and, and extraction of labor as a resource to create wealth, right? I mean, that's what makes billionaires and millionaires rich. That's what gets them. It's not like, it's not like some, like, it's not like they have like a magic lamp with a genie who gives them money or something like other people work. So they get rich. Like that's how they get millionaires and billionaires become millionaires and billionaires. And their interests are the ones who are predominantly being represented in the halls of power in the national level in this country right now. We see that with like the inaction when it comes to the disease itself the inaction when it comes to the financial crisis, you know, the inaction in general when it comes to having, you know, doing anything to help strengthen the social safety net is just speaks to who's in power, right? And in, in, in a, there's a lot, there's a lot of work to be done, <laughs> as the saying goes. Um, real quick though, but um, I feel like it's, you know, what you were saying about, you know, like people, you know, being like dreaming big and wanting to see positive change, you know, in the, in the face of, you know, people like very dire, immediate circumstances, you know, often people would be like, well, that's romantic, you know, you got to be realistic and stuff like that. And I'm like, well, I think it's, I think it's more realistic in, in, in a way to be romantic and not just like, just settle, right. For like the status quo or whatever, which makes me think of like the really cheesy, like 
red pill blue pill thing right which is just going back to what you say to what you said earlier about like people who were like well like, like you just gotta accept it you know this is the way it is blah 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 it's like well why does it have to be like well no things can change things do change right I feel like that's the red pill, blue pill thing. It's like if you settle for it, then you're taking whatever, one of them. But if you recognize and you just think, you're like, no, things don't have to be like this. That's, you know, in some sense, right? Like choosing another option. Like, no, I'm not going to basically, I feel like ultimately that is kind of like consigning, consigning one's agency, right? By being like, no, nothing, I can't, there's nothing I can do. There's nothing that can be done. And yeah, in some situations, just really, you got to pick and choose your battles. Like, in most situations, <laughs> depressingly, there may not be a whole lot that any one person can do, right? But there's always something. There's always something that can be done, you know. And if you and if you start, if we start talking and start working together, you know, before you know it, you got you know you're building, and it may take a long time to get there. You probably won't see it. it may, might, if we're lucky, we see the change in our lifetimes. You know, like Angela Davis said, she's witnessing the current moment with Black Lives Matter and everything like that. Um, she said she's and me too. I think she was referencing. Um, the movement, the Me Too movement. Um, she said, "I'm witnessing this for all the people who didn't make it, you know." And so we may not make it. Most of us probably won't see that kind of life, that that kind of transformative change, positive change, collective paradigm shift, whatever. Most of us don't live to see that kind of thing, right? But that's no reason to just throw our hands up and defeat, you know, all that fun stuff. So. It's, it's a lot, it's a lot there. It's a lot there, obviously. And I'm just, I don't know. I'm always, I'm endlessly like fascinated and surprised and elated and disgusted by humanity at large. You know, like you were saying about feeling like disassociated from the current moment. Like sometimes I feel disassociated from humanity. I'm just like, I'm just like, I feel like a spectator. Like George Carlin said, he's like, I just got a front row seat in the circus, man. Like I'm just watching it go by. Which is, but obviously, I but I think that I'm not that cynical. I, I do I do try to get up in the mix as much as possible. When I hear you talk about you know this analysis of how things are, and then this balance of not feeling defeated by looking at these patterns play themselves out over and over, and these patterns uh, mostly being quite negative and hurtful. But then there's also this position of learning from those patterns, um, also learning to call these patterns by certain names that give us opportunities to change so that when I think about this moment of vulnerability that we're going through with COVID-19 at the global context, but I want to be clear that like I, I, I'm invested you know, in layers of immediacy so that I'm aware, like, what is California doing? What is the United States doing? Um, what is my local city doing? These moments demonstrate visions of how things should be, but also visions that are actually masked or hidden by supposedly, like, philosophy of what the human conditioning is. And they're actually hiding self-interest. Because when I think about these positions that the government says, well, we can't give everyone $1,200 a month because then that's just going to make them lazy and they're not going to want to work. I'm like, okay, uh, I hear that statement. But that is only a, that statement only makes sense 
if my sole purpose as a human being is to be labor for someone else's value. And I tell you, I don't want to be that. And I'm not being disrespectful to anyone who works because we've all worked. We all work. I'm not someone that says I am the owner of this factory and I can, you know, reap the benefits from all my workers. I'm like, that's not me. Like we have to. Yeah, we have to work. We all have to work unless we're, unless we're the factory owner. We, we, we all got no and choice. And then when I think about that, that's where my, my, my position of being critical of the philosophy that ex- expressed on what our role as human beings should be. So that if there's a philosophy that says a good human being is one that works eight hours a day and then goes home and then consumes, I'm like, that only makes sense in this moment in time and this very specific social setting where we have it only makes sense in the industrial age that's what i'm saying but i'm only being clear that that is the context of logic that i can accept but it it is it is inaccurate and is insincere for me to consent without calling it what it is that it is it's hegemonic it is in the benefit of a very few for all of us to consent to that because the owner of that factory wants all the workers to believe that a good human being is one that works eight to 10 hours a day and, and to ignore that the owner, even if the owner of that factory says, you know, you see me eight to 10 hours a day in the factory like you like, yes, but I don't see you punching this machine. I don't see you risking your fingers, trying to get the little widgets out of out of that machine in time when they're cut. Yeah. You know, so I'm like, that's a good hustle that we're all the same, but we're not risking our bodies the same. And then the part that I want to <laughs> reference, as you mentioned earlier in this conversation, is like, can we share what we perceive as the arc of history? Where are we going? And man, I am motivated. I am excited. I... I see this moment the same way I saw last year. So I, I want to be clear. I was always motivated. <laughs> I just feel that there's something different to talk about. Because last year, I was optimistic. I was motivated that everyone who told me, man, why are you so happy? I was like, because my buddy just opened up this one shop where they're teaching young kids how to do this one activity as a sport. Because... He believes that that's going to be his contribution to make our community better. And my other buddy is teaching full-time history or part-time history and is motivated that, that his students are getting it and they come to school. And I'm just like, and I know those are just little things, but to me, that's, that's how we change little by little. And I do want to be also motivated by big change. I am actually impatient. I don't, I don't want to wait 100 years to say this change. I know that in all yeah. honesty, if we were given an opportunity, Elliot, you and I and a lot of us, if we, had the, if we had the controls of power, we could get this done in a week. And I'm not being <laughs> silly. I know we can do it. It's true. We would have it's to true. dismantle yeah, yeah, yeah. a lot. But, but I'm not scared yeah. about dismantling. I'm excited about building, you know, and, and yeah. there's enough of us. 
there's enough of us that we can, we can get this thing turned around fast. And that's just all it is. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's exasperating, right? Just like just looking at the possibility. That is one of the things that I struck, that just drives me nuts. Like it just exasperates me to no end. Recognizing the every day, the potential, the potential for literally, like you were saying, everything to be different if enough people, if people just wanted it, right? Of course, that's that can come across as arrogant and ignorant, as an arrogant, ignorant thing to say, right? Because obviously that is tapered, tempered by reality, which is that we're all we're conditioned, we we have we're bred that classist self hate that you reference that stigma of like, well, I'm just a little embarrassed. I'm like, like when I was a 14 year old janitor emptying the trash cans around campus, like all the big outdoor trash cans, all the lunch areas, and just around the whole, the, the whole small campus. And my peers were out there while I'm doing that. Like literally PE was our last class. They split off. We're walking back from the field. They go to the locker room. I stay in my PE uniform because I don't want to get my regular clothes dirty. And I go to the janitor closet up behind the principal's office and I get the key or I get the keys out of the principal's office and I go open up the janitor's closet and I get one of those big gray tubs and start walking it around campus. You better believe 14 year old boys let me know. And maybe just like my peers let me know, right? That and like, and it's just like, and I'm, 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 I, I was angry more than embarrassed or ashamed at that point. I was just like, I was mad. I was like, why do I have to do this? This is my mom teaches here. Y'all don't pay her enough so that I don't have to do this. Like that. And I got to put up with all this nonsense from these people that I don't really like anyway. Like this is wrong. <laughs> like so many levels, you know what I'm saying? We're all conditioned to have that, like that, that, that classism, you know, like, and it's, um, and it speaks to sort of like the generational trauma and just like, how slow and difficult and hard one change is, you know, like change is incremental. And so it's like exasperating and seeing the potential, the, the potential every day for things to be so much better, so much different. If only we weren't conditioned by all sorts of, in, in all manner of ways, but specifically what it comes down to in my mind, people know, people know because the historical record is painfully clear. If you speak up, bound to get your, your, your head chopped off. Right. And so people keep their heads down. You know, they know better because we live in a material world and people can be hurt. People can lose. We can lose our lives, you know, and there are people who are willing to take other people's lives in order to get money in order to make their material life better. You know, and so it's like and so that speaks to why, why change can be so slow to come. But it, it changes incremental. It's always happening. But I feel like, you know, just like, you know, like history, anthropology, sociology, like shows us like. It's these patterns. When you look at people and, and human behavior in, in any context of the past, present, and future, you see patterns develop and all that fun stuff. I feel like one of the things that the study of history, history, right, as I like to call it, I don't know if history is actually gendered, but it's, you know, history, the human story, you know, it's like you see those patterns over and over again of slow change, incremental change, building, 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 sacrifices successes small victories like hey my students are getting it hey my buddy has a successful small business this is cool you know like small small victories you know two steps forward one step back and then something like now something like the pandemic hits and you know there's this you know opportunity for positive and negative change but something happens there's a moment where there's a catalyst or you know like like there's just a case that is just like the straw that breaks the camel's back like um um, you know, in the case of Emmett Till, one of the reasons that struck a chord, you know, 1954, that 14 year old African-American boy from 
Chicago, Illinois, who went to visit his grandfather for the summer in Mississippi, falsely accused of whistling at a white woman, you know, Mrs. Bryant, um, Carolyn, I can't remember her first name, right, who renounced it on her deathbed in 2014 or whatever it was. She said that was a lie. It never happened. That boy was kidnapped at gunpoint out of his grandfather's house two nights later, beaten mercilessly. Who knows what was done to him? Just, you know, shot in the head, dumped in the river with a with a gin fan, you know, which you find on cotton plantations, with a gin fan tied around his neck with barbed wire. Right? If I, if I recall correctly, that's what they used. Right? His body was so disfigured. You know, they, they went to look for his body at, down there because they knew that's where to look because this kind of thing happened so often. That's the kind of history. That's the kind of struggle that people have lived through, right? His his mother made the decision to to have an open casket funeral, and that photograph got published and went nationwide, right? And it was just people. It just kind of struck a chord. So you see the, you know, the civil rights didn't just pop up. The common misconception, right, is you know, civil rights just popped up in the fifties. All of a sudden, African American people were tired of segregation, you know. And Rosa Parks was just her feet hurt. So no, she was an activist, and that was like. Attempt number how many, you know, from Plessy v. Ferguson all the way to the back to, you know, street people, um, people of color, like particularly black people in the in the east and southwest, uh, southeastern United States getting on, and in the north, right, getting on streetcars and being thrown off because of the color of their skin, you're right, and people have been challenging this for so long, you know, you see that, in that you see the, you know, reconstruction, these massive gains, and they're just rolled back and stopped by the most, the most mind-numbing violence, you see the rise of Jim Crow segregation, all that fun stuff. You see this incremental change, you know, NAACP, right, the foundation of NAACP, and everything else, you know, just everything, everything since, and in the interim, um, right? And then you see something like the case of Emmett Till, just, you know, just, you know, you see this, you know, these, these moments of big change, rapid change in a small period, and then it reverts back to the status quo, but not quite, right? And then there's another extended period of, you know, incremental change, incremental change, like I said, that back and forth, that back and forth, and then, boom, something happens. Critical mass is reached, and we get rapid change in a short period, and then sort of a shift back to the status quo, but not the status quo. And then people just keep pushing, right? And it's like, you know, it's that, that the, the metaphor of uh, the pendulum of history goes back and forth, and as I like to say, it does history, obviously, right? Human 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 experience and history is cyclical, Um and that pendulum is a real thing and it goes back and forth and, you know, but it, it's not, it goes back and forth according to how we're able to direct it, right? In the context of living on this planet as, as a species. And there's also a wobble on it, right? So it goes back and forth, but it's never the same way twice. There's also like a little wobble, right? So it goes back and forth, but it's never quite the same way twice. So if you think of like a loop that is kind of keeps moving forward and it's not to say that things will always guarantee get better, but history is ju- is progressive. Just existence is progressive, just in the sense that like it's cyclical. But we're always moving forward in a sense, right? We're moving from the present into the future, and the present becomes the past. And that's just sort of like you know, there, there's also the philosophical conversation about you know, there's no time but the present and all that fun stuff. But the present moment is still moving, right? It it, it changes from second to second, moment to moment. And we're always moving forward. We're always moving from one moment to the next. We're not going back, you know, like you and I can't like hit pause and rewind and like go back in time five minutes. Like time moves 
forward. So in that way, it's 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 regressive. But I think of it as cyclical, cyclical and progressive, right? So people, there's there's that argument. It's like you know a lot of like traditional historians are like you know follow a very like linear idea of time, and then a lot of indigenous traditions around the world, right? Non-traditional, non-academic, non-institutionalized ideas of human existence are very cyclical, right? I like to think of it as both. Like you know, it's sort of like it's like that loop. It's always moving forward and coming back on itself and always moving forward and coming back on itself. Kind of like the snake eating its tail in a way. I don't know if that makes any kind of sense. But lastly, it all just like, you know, critical mass and all that fun stuff and how we get change and, you know, imagining the future. It's um, what you said made me think of um, made me think of uh, one of my favorite quotes of all time by one of my favorite authors of all time. Frederick Douglass, I mean, amazing um, historical figure for all the flaws I'm sure he had as a human, right? Um, but uh, it's a great quote, right? Um, he said, those who want change without struggle, they want the wind without the rain. They want, they want the spring without the storm. They want the crop without the storm, basically, something along those lines. And then further he said, you know, in power concedes nothing without a demand, right? Like... Um, and that demand, that 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 struggle for for share to share power, it may be a physical one, it may be a, a moral one. It'll probably be a combination of the two, but it, there there will inevitably be a struggle. You know, he was saying he's like, there's no way to avoid it because power concedes nothing without a demand, which makes me think of the Milan Kundera quote. Said the struggle of of human or man against power is the struggle of um, memory against forgetting, you know. And that's to me, it's like it's like a constant thing, you know. And hopefully, we can always make it better, but we got to be careful in moments of crisis like this that you know that that we direct our efforts towards positive change as much as possible, and that we, as much as possible, you know, within the context of a pandemic, um, stay engaged and active and informed as much as possible right while still <laughs> somehow hopefully taking care of ourselves and maintaining our own uh, survival right as i hear you reference the way that we kind of can think about what where we are in society where we are in this moment in time that we call history or we can't call history and the, the respective kind of uh, perspectives that are available you know, as I, as I was hearing you talk, I was referencing a memory, and that is going up to Griffith Park Observatory, and there's a pendulum there that you, as a little kid, you can kind of see, and it just kind of goes back and forth, but it has these little dominoes in a straight line, and it takes about every hour for that pendulum to knock a different domino. It, uh -huh. it, it's, it's intended to give a reference of the rotation of the, of the globe, of the Earth, you know, with this huge pendulum huh. that is, I think it's anchored from like the ceiling of the, of the museum. So it's, it's quite large. But what I remember as a child is that, you know, it was giving me something to see, to reference something that would be difficult for me to grasp, that the world was moving in ways right. that I didn't understand. And Time, I think, works like that too, or history or society. Now, for a lot of us, mm -hmm. uh, we say things that reference time and history as just repeating itself over and over. I remember hearing that as a child, as a young man, and then eventually rejecting it. 
personally, I, I figured that it was not going to be a good tool for me. That the idea of repetition, mm. even when I saw things that were similar, uh, wasn't going to work for me because it didn't give credit to the, to the actors. So that, for example, they would say things, well, we've had wars, so war will always, always repeat itself. And I thought, no, war doesn't just happen like the weather. Like war is a conscious activity. And then later on, I was able to even create more yeah. conversation of analysis that said war requires resources, requires control, requires consent, requires organization. And then I started listing who has that organization, who has that control. And I was able to call specific people by name and specific nation states by name. And then I realized that I like that better. That like, I was not gonna consent to the yes. idea of these things that just repeat, but to give, um, to give more reference to what I was thinking about as I was hearing you uh, reference your analysis of time, I think it's easier to give credit to other uh, bodies of knowledge that use something similar. And when we think about like our presence in this universe, we think about the earth rotating around the sun but the sun itself is moving through space so we we are ne we're never returning back to the same place we haven't and that's bizarre that's right. to me that's beautiful <laughs> and scary at the same time because as you and i are talking i don't even know how fast we're going but we are spiraling through space and we will never return back to the same location ever <laughs> and I think that's yeah. how I want to reference our society. It's like things feel like they're the same thing, but no, I'm more encouraged by the fact that we will never return back to those horrible times of oppression. We are only mm. contending totally. to people and institutions that are stuck in that past and want to, re want to return us back there. But they cannot, even when they right. replicate a scenario, they're never returning us back there. It, they can't because we we. It's harder for them to manipulate, right? It's harder to divide and conquer because more of us have more access to more information, right? Knowledge is power. For I, I said this in conversation with the messenger, you know, because everything is online these days. But you know, one of my oldest friends, we were, you know, chatting on messenger. And I had opportunities. I was like, knowledge is power for the mind, body, and spirit. You know, it's not just like, you know, like you were saying, you know, like you describing that, that process of like thinking critically about like, you know, that lie that you had been taught, that we that were all taught. Like, oh, war is just an inevitable part of human history and human existence. Just got to get used to it. But when you look at it, you look at the actually, right? You actually, you get the real knowledge. You're like, wait, no, that's a lie. That's just a bald-faced lie. This is... This is something, as Ursula K. Le Guin very famously said, you know, like, you know, in, in, a, in a quote that, you know, attributed to her referencing capitalism, she said, you know, anything that's done by humans can be undone by humans. Like, it's, it, it, it's not, and to think otherwise is to, again, just like deny our own agency and our own ability to, to live better and do better. And, um, and you, you know, I, I, I agree that, you know, we can never, as much as like, you know, for example, like, you know, as much as some people would like to go back to the days of, you know, slavery or child labor or, you know, women not being allowed to work, you know, like, or vote, like, um, you know, or like whatever prejudice, 
as much as some might like to take us back to when that was the law of the land, I think you're right. It will not, they won't be able to, as long as we remain vigilant and teach each successive generation the full history, the full story, so that they know, right? So that we continue to know better, which is, I think, I think is what people do. Just, I don't, we, it's just something we do inherently. Like we, we share lessons with each successive generation, and each successive generation is it has been, has, you know, historically speaking, has been empowered with more and more, um, a, a wider and deeper um, knowledge base, right? And as long as we're able to to maintain and protect and, and, and expand and enlarge in that knowledge base and not let it be taken away, then then I'm, I'm confident that it will you know it will go forward. But you can see smaller instances where you know like where you know the history is denied, the story is erased, and you get regression. You know you get rights being taken away because people forget you know how important they are or and how hard people fought to get them in the first place. Which, you know, makes me think of, like, you know, a lot of younger folks for a long time. I like to think it's changing now, but for, like, our, our generation, I feel like for a long time, it was very common, you know, Generation X, you know, like, historically super low voter turnout. And again, like, not like we had great candidates, you know, <laughs> but it's just, you know, it was just like, people were like, well, well, you know, and I have these conversations, people were like, well, I don't vote because it doesn't matter. I'm all like... Well, if there's, you know, do something about it. Like, I get it. I get it. I understand that. I hear it. And it, it, it's legitimate in many instances. But if that's the case, then, you know, don't just sit on your hands. Don't be defeated, you know. Um, which, I don't know. That's I, I like to think that people are, I, mean, I don't know. I think it's true, right? I think it's self-apparent that, that humans, like, we're pretty, we're, we're pretty resilient, you know. I mean, we've, we've lasted this long. I mean, who knows? You know, we've got the Damocles swords of... Um, environmental degradation and devastation and global warming and, and, and all that, as well as the the constant threat of nuclear annihilation, which is something we forget about, but it's there all day, every day. And those are two things that are kind of hanging above the head of humanity, right? So I think it's a big question mark, you know? I mean, I think it is kind of a roll of the dice as to whether or not we, you know, this or we as a species, you know, last out the century. Although I am, opt I'm hopeful and I'm optimistic while trying to be realistic at the same time, if that makes sense, you know. Elliot, thank you for sharing this conversation. Yeah, for sure, dude. It's been a lot of fun, man. Thanks again. Thanks again, dude. It's uh, I always enjoy talking with you, man. It's uh, it's been a good time. You have just finished hearing a conversation with historian Elliot Kim. We addressed the subject of labor, specifically how it relates with the current. COVID-19 pandemic, in which past conversations are addressing equitable pay, worker protection, as well as even the very concept of respecting all labor, have taken a different tone. As a result of the alarm, concern, preoccupation with security for ourselves, many of us have taken an extension where we can see the value that others have on their own, but also in respect to ourselves. The issue of living wage is moving toward much more broader acceptance. Many of us have even taken the extent of questioning the very 40-hour work week, if there's room to modify it towards something that is more flexible to support a healthier work pattern. I really appreciate the opportunity to hear from Elliot Kim, as a historian, 
carry forward the conversation between the past and the present, but also interestingly enough, being able to take the conversation into the future. To really acknowledge our own agency, our own power, our own creativity in imagining a future. But the imagination is the beginning. With that direction of projecting a possible future, we can convert that imagination into reality. I feel that it's important to give credit that we are the imagination of the past. We're living it right now. I want to thank you for listening to The Dear Report. Please feel free to send me your thoughts, questions, any feedback to the following email. Comments at dreport.org And you can also check out dreport.org to review past segments. I hope you found this conversation of interest and value and take it to your respective circles to continue. Stay strong, stay safe. Join us again next week.